Chapter 20 of A Bunch of Everlastings, or Texts That Made History, by Frank W. Borum. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tim Bauer. Chapter 20. William Nibbs Text. Could anything be more perfectly beautiful, more wonderfully fair? Far as the eye can reach in every direction, the eye is charmed and captivated by the loveliness of the landscape. As we pace the deck of the steamer as she rides at anchor in the bay, we turn from one prospect to another, uncertain as to which of them all is the most delightful. In the background, the blue mountains stand out in sturdy and rugged grandeur against the deep blue sky. Even at this distance, we get hints of the glorious forests that clothe those graceful slopes, and of the thickly wooded valleys that divide range from range, what a playground for the countless troops of monkeys! What a paradise for the flock of gorgeously colored birds! Their gay plumage flashes like flames of fire amidst this riot of gigantic forestry. Nearer to the coast are the vast plains which, built up in the course of ages by tiny coral insects, now wave with their flourishing plantations and abounding fruitage. For the island is as fertile as it is fair as rich as it is radiant. Coffee and sugar and arrowroot, orange and lemon and grape, cinnamon, banana, and pineapple. This oval beauty spot in sun-bathed tropical seas is a congenial garden for them all. Even the ocean that caresses the island seems to feel that it must assume a beauty in keeping with the loveliness of the land its waters lave. The masses of brilliant coral immediately beneath the surface impart to the shining waters a sheen of sapphire tints such as the sea but rarely boasts. I have spent many years, says a modern traveler, in voyage from shore to shore, but I know of no spot under heaven where the land is so luxuriously beautiful and the ocean so extravagantly blue. This, then, is Jamaica. Could anything be more abominable, more repulsively hideous? Life in this scene of enchantment was the life, not of paradise, but of perdition. From these fruitful plains and flowery valleys there rose to heaven not the song of praise, but a scream of intolerable anguish, for Jamaica was the abode of slavery. All day long the men must work, and all day long the women must weep but the men will derive no satisfaction from their labor, and the women will find no comfort in their tears. They are not their own, these people, far less are they each other's. There is no such thing as marriage among these ebony-skinned, thick-lipped, woolly-haired creatures, and any unions that they form among themselves are subject to the exigencies of future sales. These little children in which the missionaries interest themselves Children with roguish eyes and laughing faces have been bred for the market, and they will be sold as soon as their limbs are set. Young men and maidens are pretty much the same all the world over. You may see a good deal of furtive love-making on an evening among the plantations. But in each lover's heart there is a dagger that Cupid never shot. For as the stalwart youth sees his dusky sweetheart grow more shapely and more charming, he trembles lest her beauty should catch the eye of the overseer and result in her being sold into a life that is worse than a thousand deaths. 
The best that he can hope for is that he and she may be permitted to live together for a few years in some little hut among the bushes and produce children for sale at the monthly market. And if any slave dares to lift his hand or even his voice in rebellion or resentment, there are the treadmill and the lash and the knife. The only thing that stands between the black man and a cruel death is his market value on the plantation or at the auction block. Like the asp that Cleopatra concealed among the lilies, this hideous evil cried to heaven from among the beauteous fields and forests of Jamaica. Did heaven hear such piercing cries? Or even if heaven heard, how could heaven help? We shall see, but in order to see we must recross the Atlantic. And here, in a narrow street in Bristol, is a printer's shop. The name over the door, comparatively freshly painted, is the name J. G. Fuller. In the printing room, behind the shop, are a couple of apprentice boys. They are brothers, Thomas and William Nibb. Mr. Fuller is the son of the Reverend Andrew Fuller of Keetering, one of the founders of the modern missionary movement. He has only recently come to Bristol, hence the newly painted name, and he brought the two Nibs, Keetering boys, with him. Mr. Fuller, with the impress of his father's noble character strongly upon him, at once associates himself with the Broadmead Church and Sunday School. After a while, the two apprentices, with the impress of their employer's character strongly upon them, associate themselves with the same church and take classes in the same Sunday School. It is a fine thing when a man's piety is of such an order that the youths in his workroom say among themselves, His religion shall be my religion, and his God my God. In due time, Mr. Fuller became the superintendent of the Sunday school, and made it his practice to deliver a short address before closing the school. It was one of those addresses that made history. I have heard of a man aiming at a pigeon and killing a crow, but I know of no instance in which that remarkable feat was performed on such a splendid scale as in the conversion of William Nibb. One Sunday afternoon, before dismissing the children, Mr. Fuller spoke for a few moments from the text. Wilt thou not from this time cry unto me, my father, thou art the guide of my youth? Mr. Fuller aimed at the scholars, but his words smote the conscience and won the hearts of a teacher, and that teacher one of his own apprentices. It was a most earnest and affectionate address, wrote William Nibb shortly afterwards, and, under the divine blessing, it made a deep, and I trust, lasting impression on my mind and I hope that I was enabled to cast myself at the foot of the cross as a perishing sinner, pleading for mercy for the sake of Jesus Christ and for his sake alone. A day or two later the youth sought an interview with his employer. I felt ashamed, said Nib, in the course of his conversation with Mr. Fuller. I felt ashamed, being a teacher, that the address should be as suitable to me as to the children. I felt conscious that I had wandered as far from God as ever they had, and that I needed a forgiving father and a constant guide as much as they did. I was overwhelmed. I felt such a mixture of shame and grief, of hope and love, as I had never before and cannot now describe. I could not join in the closing hymn. I went to my room above and yielded to my feelings. I wept bitterly and prayed as I had never prayed before. I turned the text itself into a prayer. My father, I cried to God, Wilt thou not from this time be the guide of my youth? The Lord heard my prayer and enabled me to give him my heart, 
and now it is my earnest desire to yield myself to his guidance as long as I live. I need a forgiving father. I need a constant guide. My father, wilt not thou be the guide of my youth? The Lord heard my prayer, the apprentice says exultingly, as he looks gratefully into his employer's face. And when the Lord heard that prayer, he heard the bitter cry of the island whose fair shores we just now visited. For the salvation of William Nibb was the deliverance of the slaves across the seas. And it was not William Nibb, but Thomas, who was most concerned about the lands that lay in darkness. In setting up some copy that had come into the printing room, the elder of the two apprentices had been startled by the crying needs of the heathen world. He longed to be a missionary, when, one day, somebody referred to the successes being achieved by native preachers, Thomas burst into tears. His younger brother asked him why he wept. I am greatly afraid, Thomas replied, that since the native preachers are so successful, no more white missionaries will be needed, and I shall have no part in the evangelization of the world. His fears, however, were groundless. He became a missionary, was designated for Jamaica, arrived there in January 1823, and died of malaria just three months later. It was a dark day for the younger brother when the heavy tidings reached England. But he met the crisis, his biographer tells us, with characteristic firmness and promptitude. When the news of his brother's death was communicated to him by Mr. Fuller, his feelings were strongly excited and he wept bitterly. But as soon as the first gush of emotion had subsided, he rose from the table and said, then, if the society will accept me, I'll go and take his place. A forgiving father, a constant guide. My father, wilt not thou be the guide of my youth? In the cry of an enslaved people, fortified and intensified by the cry of his brother's grave, William Nibb recognized the leading of the kindly light. The guide of his youth was pointing the way, and he bravely followed the gleam. My father, he cried on that never-to-be-forgotten Sunday afternoon, wilt not thou be the guide of my youth? And not once, through all the eventful years that followed, did that clear guidance fail him. He went out to Jamaica to preach the gospel, but he soon came to feel, as Livingstone felt on the other side of the Atlantic a few years afterwards, that the work of evangelization and the work of emancipation are inseparable. Christianity could make no terms with slavery. Little by little he was led, by the invisible guide whose beckoning hand he had pledged himself to follow, into a work that he had never for a moment anticipated. The sights that he witnessed sickened him. They became the ceaseless torture of his soul. He felt that no sacrifice would be too great if only he could strike the shackles from the limbs of the slaves. And he made terrific sacrifices, the guidance that he had so passionately sought rarely led him into green pastures or beside still waters. It led him, rather, into terrible privations, relentless persecution, and desolating bereavements. In that fever-laden climate, he, one by one, buried his children almost as soon as they were born. One, the boy whom he named after himself, was spared to see his twelfth birthday, but the others were lowered as babes into his brother's grave. From one of these heart-rending burials after another, he turned sadly away. The father's soul within him longed for a life in a land in which his little ones could live. 
but the reformer soul within him determined never to leave the island till all the slaves were free on more than one occasion he was charged with rebellion handcuffed and dragged about the island his persecutors heaping upon him every form of indignity that could be calculated to degrade him in the eyes of the slaves the churches that he had erected at such cost and in which he had taken such pride were burned down by the slave owners before his very eyes he was spared no humiliation that could tend to his embarrassment and discomfiture he visited england in order that he might stir his fellow-countrymen to righteous indignation the whole country was moved by the passion and the pathos of those tremendous appeals if i fail in arousing the sympathy of england he cried i will go back to jamaica and call upon him who hath made of one blood all nations upon the earth and if i die without beholding the emancipation of my brethren and sisters in christ then if prayer is permitted in heaven i will fall at the feet of the eternal crying lord open the eyes of the christians in england to see the evil of slavery and to banish it from the earth but the people heard and the parliament heard and the prayer of his passionate heart was granted him wilt thou not be the guide of my youth he cried and the guide led to the goal as a result of mr nibbs tireless activities the slaves were freed their emancipation came into force at midnight on july thirty first eighteen thirty eight and what is this as the historic hour draws near the exultant slaves gather in their thousands at the church during the evening hymns are sung the excited blacks join in the praise with a zest that even they have never shown before as the night deepens the emotions become more intense as the hand of the clock approaches the midnight hour mr nibb standing in the pulpit shouts the monster is dying as the clock begins to strike he cries again the monster is dying and when the hour was fully struck he proclaims the monster is dead the scene is indescribable never wrote nib was heard such a sound the winds of freedom appeared to have been let loose the very building shook at the strange yet sacred joy oh had my boy my lovely freedom-loving boy been there alas he is sleeping undisturbed in the churchyard nor can the sweet sounds he so much loved awake him from his rest in passionate longing to have at least one of his children associated with that glad historic event mr nib slips across to his home draws his twelve-month-old baby from his cot at midnight though it is returns with the child in his arms and holds him proudly up before the shouting clapping singing multitude in the early gray of the morning a most remarkable burial takes place in the churchyard one might almost say in the words of mrs alexander that was the grandest funeral that ever passed on earth many of the slaves were skilled cabinet makers they have prepared a most exquisitely carved and polished coffin and have dug a deep deep grave into the coffin they throw the slave chain a slave whip a slave hat and an iron collar all the insignia of their degradation the great crowd of grateful freedmen gathers round the open grave and a solemn funeral service is held at the proper moment the coffin is lowered into the yawning grave the multitude singing exultingly now slavery we laid thy vile form in the dust and buried forever there let it remain and rotted 
and covered with infamy's rust, be every man whip and fetter and chain. The land rings with doxologies. The beauteous island is delivered from the hideous curse. The guide has led to the goal. The chains are shattered. The slaves are free. Among the people whom he loved so well, the people whom he had emancipated and evangelized, Nib died a few years later. He was only forty-two when he passed away. I am not afraid to die, he said. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth from all sin, both of omission and commission. That blood is my only trust. And, just as the gentle spirit was about to take its flight, he reached out his hand to Mrs. Nib and murmured, Mary, it's all right. All is well. My father, he cried at the dawn of his career. My father, will not thou be the guide of my youth? It is all right. All is well, he murmured in the last moments of his life. The guide had led to the goal. Under sure, safe, skillful pilotage, the ship had made a good voyage and had come straight to port. William Nibb had cast his anchor within the veil. It is all right. All is well. Such is the final gladness of all who follow faithfully the kindly light. End of chapter 20